1: Hello and welcome to the Cartoon Salooniverse, the podcast that howls the praises of one of the world's greatest animation studios, Cartoon Saloon. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen the lot of them.
2: I'm Steph Watts
1: and I'm Jake Cunningham and we're running with the walls. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Cartoon Saloon.
3: Michael, Steph, uh, it took us a good couple of years and many, many episodes to get up to the present day with Studio Ghibli, uh, with Cartoon Saloon. Uh, we're already there. It's only taken us four, but we are we are now living in the modern world. Uh, what are we talking about today? <laughs> oh, we're talking about Wolfwalkers today. And this is a film that even though it
1: came out at the back end of 2020, still feels so fresh because it's being talked about every day because of this long awards season. It's getting nominations seemingly daily. So it's still so fresh in the mind. And hopefully, you know, if listeners haven't had a chance to watch it, this will inspire them to go away and watch it too.
3: And it's not the first time that we've been talking about it on the podcast either. Mm-hmm. So listeners that tuned into our Whispers from the Heart series at the back end of last year would have heard the directors, Tom Moore and Ross Stewart, talking a bit about the film, but also about the influence of Studio Ghibli on Cartoon Saloon. So absolutely go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already. But it's so exciting uh, to be able to talk about a film that is happening right now. Um, like with this and our Earwig and the Witch episode from a few weeks ago, it suddenly feels like uh, we're, we're in the zeitgeist for the first absolutely. time.
1: And there's something quite rare and unique about this film. All the way through this miniseries, we've been having Steph as the canary in the gold mine watching some of these films for the first time. I think Steph, you watched Wolf Walkers between uh, before me and Jake. Yeah, well, you're I, think the I expert. Might have
2: done. Yeah. I saw it on a, a festival a festival run from home. So this is yeah, this is my expert film. Well, this is the first one I saw. So So
1: with that in mind, Steph, could you please tee us up with some plot summary?
2: Absolutely. In a time of superstition and magic, a young apprentice hunter, Robin Goodfellow, journeys to Ireland with her father to wipe out the last wolf pack. While exploring the forbidden land outside the city walls, Robin befriends a free-spirited girl, Maeve, a member of a mysterious tribe rumoured to have the ability to transform into wolves by night. As they search for Maeve's missing mother, Robin uncovers a secret that draws her further into the enchanted world of the Wolfwalkers, and risks turning into the very thing her father is tasked to destroy.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom
4: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
3: Thank you so much, Steph. Now, Michael, you've got to give us the rundown. What is happening between... The Breadwinner and here, and I suppose for Tom Moore and Ross Stewart, uh, between Song of the Sea and here, how have we got to Wolfwalkers? Yes. So I
1: think I mentioned this on previous episodes, but let's just kind of rattle through the context for Tom Moore and Ross Stewart. They work together on The Secrets of Kells. Ross Stewart goes away to work with Leica Studios on Paranorman. He does visual development concept art type work on that film. Meanwhile, he does some very early concept work on Song of the Sea, including giving Tom Moore some of those kind of key texts that inspired the story. Um, it's during Song of the Sea that the idea for this film comes to Tom Moore. He and Ross Stewart decide to make the third film in what would be called their Folklore Trilogy. Uh, we love a good trilogy, don't we, Jake? The Indiana Jones trilogy. Yeah, I, I, th- original Star I Wars thought trilogy. that's what...
3: Um... I thought the Folklore Trilogy was gonna was, is the, uh, leading to the unreleased third Taylor Swift album from last year.
1: <laughs> Perfect. Um, I've got a great quote from Tom Moore here that explains sort of how the idea came to him. He says, I remember one of the earliest things we came across was a documentary series called Wolfland. Ireland had once been called Wolfland. Neither of us were aware of that because the wolves had long been extinct. And a lot of the folklore regarding wolves became extinct as well. Many things considered part of Irish culture, how the Irish saw themselves were exterminated by exterminating the wolves. So that's almost a very similar starting point to Song of the Sea, the story about him seeing those seals being killed on the coast and how previous generations, because of the mythology and folklore around selkies and magical seals, sort of inspired him to go back and reassess that myth. So Ross Stewart comes back to Cartoon Saloon. One of the first things he does is he co-directs a segment for the animated anthology film The Prophet* uh, with Tom Moore. That was from 2014. So by this point, he's now ascended to the ranks of director. And that's the way that the two of them approach Wolfwalkers as co-directors. And, of course, we point to the interview of the two of them we did last year as just one example of how they both speak about the film together. And they've given so many great interviews on this with this like level playing field this sort of two-headed creative monster that they've they've become it's really really great going back and reading all the interviews they've given they're also both art directors on the film working with maria Pereira, who's a newcomer to cartoon saloon they also come up with the story together and But the script is written by Will Collins, who he last mentioned on the Song of the Sea episode. He's back on screenplay duties here, once again, wrangling all these big ideas about Irish identity, history, and folklore that Tom Moore has been coming up with. So once again, this is an international co-production with Melusine, the studio in Luxembourg. I think we've given the sense all the way through this uh, miniseries that Cartoon Saloon are these like scrappy upstarts in Kilkenny, you know, you know, a couple of old college kids working together. By this point, they've got 300 animators working for them. They are a major studio, well, major in their own world. So it's a hotbed of talent with people from all over the world coming to Kilkenny to, uh, to work on these films. In 2017, we get a work in progress teaser trailer for Wolfwalkers um, that gets the buzz going. And I recommend, uh, people go and look at that now after watching the final film because it's all there, just slight, in slightly rougher form. So many of the ideas on the craft level and the story level are in that teaser trailer. And it also comes with a making-of featurette that shows how they were taking inspiration from Kilkenny itself. This film would be set in Kilkenny. They were literally walking down the streets and sketching locations. Um, and it's also really fun because it ends with this little test audience clip it comes up saying test screening for wolfwalkers and it's basically paul young the studio co-founder, his daughter, watching it and saying, it's like Song of the Sea. <laughs> and it's really cute. And uh, yet another example we've talked about it with almost every film, an example of the Cartoon Saloon having this open dialogue with their kids and drawing inspiration with their, from their kids about the work they're doing. And it's just so sweet to see that almost happen with every single film. And watching that featurette and the teaser trailer leads us into how Tom Moore and Ross Stewart are factoring in some pretty ambitious moves behind the scenes for Wolfwalkers, even though they're going back to a similar well of inspiration from Song of the Sea and Secrets of Kells. They really wanted to level up craft-wise here. And Tom Moore talks about this in terms of the, like, of them embracing the true power of 2D hand-drawn animation. Here's a quote from him. 2D is closer to the language of dreams. It's closer to the language of symbols. You can see cave paintings from 30,000 years ago, and they are magical because they're stylized and represent a way of communicating that's evolved over the whole history of painting, drawing comics, illustration. For Wolfwalkers, we had animators who'd worked on Klaus, the very glitzy Netflix Christmas film. We were kind of going in the opposite direction as Klaus is super polished, and beautiful and we wanted to really make a virtue of the fact that wolf walkers was drawn so we let the lines be alive and show the inner workings of the characters so a real sort of craft ambition behind that and i love how reading all the interviews with tom moore and ross stewart that they're giving on the release trail but also the campaign trail for oscar season award season they shout out so many of the like specific names in the crew and what they brought to this film makes it different so a big thing about wolf walkers is that it's kind of an action film it's about Wolf hunters clashing with these magical wolves in the forest near near the town, so it's much more action packed and style and in pace than anything they've made previously. And this is a quote here from Tom: A lot of the action sequences were storyboarded by a guy called Iker Maedigan, who'd worked at Blue Sky, and that's the studio that make Ice Age. And Tom says, one of his favourite films is Indiana Jones. So he storyboarded a lot of three-dimensional perspective shots, lots of intense camera angles. And even that was a bit of a shift away from our other films. We didn't know how we were going to pull it off, but we thought if we were going to go for an action movie, then we should go for the action storyboarding too and figure out how to do it later. And that action sensibility, or like that sort of Hollywood sensibility, comes through in the editing as well. Tom Moore mentions how one of the editors on this is Darren T. Holmes, who'd worked on How to Train Your Dragon and The Iron Giant. So there's this real shift, even within the distinctive cartoon saloon look and feel. And it brings challenges with it. They talk about it in a very practical way. Every time you make a cut in an animated film, you need to have a new shot. And if it's a unique shot you need to have a new background and because they're painting and drawing all these detailed backgrounds that's quite a lot of work and um ross stewart says that in wolf walkers there's 1500 unique backgrounds compared to 800 in song of the sea so it's like double the amount of artwork they're creating for this but really All of this experimentation and labour intensive work pales in comparison to what is known as the wolf vision sequences in the film, where we see the world through the senses of a wolf. And it's just these beautiful scenes. We'll talk about it in a minute. But it's such a trip reading about how they pulled it off and the way they did it. So they worked with a chap called Evan McNamara, and he would build the environments in VR and then fully pre-visualise these first person sequences digitally then they'd print off every frame of that sequence and hand-render each frame at 12 frames a second using charcoal and pencil. And in that making of feature I mentioned, you can kind of see like the early stages of that because this sequence took a long time to make. There's about three and a half minutes of this footage in the film. And Tom Ward says that it basically took the entire length of the production, something I like three years, for them to actually animate the whole thing. So that's like what... A year, a minute, animation speed. <laughs> that sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? That's a familiar pace. It's our Takahata kind of pace of animation.
3: Well, and also the current Miyazaki pace as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: So, um, G kids were involved um in this project early on but the big news here that's different from everything so far is that wolf walkers is acquired by apple for their apple tv plus platform and is poised for this huge launch at the toronto international film festival and big rollout as one of the first major features on the apple tv platform that doesn't pan out as planned due to the pandemic um, however, I'd still recommend looking up a huge billboard they put up for Wolf Walkers in New York. Um, I think if you like Google Billboard New York Wolf Walkers, Tom Moore has shared a lot of pictures of it. It's amazing to see Cartoon Saloon go from being this scrappy studio in Kilkenny, making a film like Secret of Kells to having a huge billboard in New York City. Uh, it's really fun to see that change over the decade or so. Um, the film premieres at Toronto, which I think is how you saw it, Steph, and played at the London Film Festival not long after, which is how Jake and I caught up a few weeks later. Um, It gets really strong reviews and the sort of coverage that Cartoon Saloon hasn't had before, like New Yorker profiles as like the future of animation uh, being represented by that studio. So we should say that we're recording this episode right in the middle of this very long, protracted, COVID-19-affected awards (sighs) season that just seems to be going on and on forever. And at time of recording, Wolfwalkers is being nominated for all sorts of awards, and we're speaking in that beautiful, magical moment where, really, it could win all of them. Of course, listeners listening in the future can tell us otherwise, but let's run through some of those key nominations. Wolfwalkers is nominated for the Best Animated Feature Academy Award, keeping that amazing run going for Cartoon Saloon. Four feature films, all nominated for Oscars. That is just an incredible streak. It's up this year against two big Pixar films, Onward and Soul, the Netflix animated film Over the Moon, and also Farmageddon, the Shaun the Sheep movie from Ardman. But for me, the more... Notable or noteworthy nomination comes from the BAFTAs. It's nominated for Best Animated Film there, and it was only when that was announced that it struck me that it's the first time Cartoon Saloon has had a film nominated for a BAFTA. None of the films, this is crazy to think about, right? None of the films we've talked about so far in the miniseries has been nominated for a BAFTA. So hopefully Wolf Walkers can make history there. It's up against For the BAFTA, Onward and Soul. So just the two Pixar movies, and you know. I'm not a BAFTA voter, but if I was, I think I know where my
3: vote would be going. Yep, yep. I think that's that's an easy choice. <laughs> uh, it's it's onward. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen onward. It could be, no. but let's uh, let's move onward to uh, <laughs> our chat about Wolf Walkers. <laughs> Sending you to the stocks for that, Michael. <laughs>
2: So, Michael Jake, obviously I saw this one before you guys. So I'm going to ask you guys, what come into this film? What's kind of familiar from the other Cartoon Saloon films that we've now seen and talked about?
3: Well, it, it's so odd kind of for me doing this whole series in reverse order, having seen Wolf Walkers most recently before we started this and then going to watch Secret of Kells, the film I hadn't seen. And that that was the one that started their adventures in features. And Secret Akelle's feeling so connected to Wolf Walkers. It's like a straight line between the two. It's amazing. Um, And there is so many similarities between that. I mean, not least, you've got this central boxed in, walled off, town in the middle of it and the nat- nature that surrounds that and the character that travels between the two, uh, in their youthful adventure. Um, but you've also got development and it, within the art style as well. Um, so that's not saying it's like drastically different or anything, but I think secret of Kells, like it was, it's very experimental, like style will shift between scenes quite dramatically and amazingly in wolf walkers you could flip through like 20 minutes at a time just picking random frames and think oh these must be from different films because the style seems so different but you watch it as a whole and it never feels like it's making these dramatic swings it somehow managed to be so stylishly ambitious between individual moments but at all times coalesce into this world that feels under one roof um Mm-hmm. Michael, what did you make of it?
1: Oh, I completely agree. And watch—I remember I rewatched *Secret of Kells* before watching *Wolfwalkers*, and then since then, rewatched *Kells* again and rewatched *Wolfwalkers*. So when I watched *Wolfwalkers* the first time, maybe I was picking up some *Kells* bits and pieces. But now, when I rewatched it, now that we've watched *Kells* and *Song of the Sea* again, I see it as the perfect marriage of the two. You said *Secret of Kells* has that sort of experimental feel, where there are extreme. Um, changes in character design between the characters and song of the sea then presented this more there's still elements of expressionistic kind of caricatures and like the the, the size of the characters and designs but there was that more unique line the sort of the, the clear line of a european influence all the way through and this manages to meld the two into clearly the secret of Kells world of the celtic symbol symbols and the circles again bringing you know, almost back from Secret to Kells*, the idea of using frames within frames and triptych-style shots, where um, perspective would change based on the frame we're looking at. That's still there a lot, but it is like this evolution between the three films that Tom Moore has directed, with or without Russ Stewart. The big thing that's different for me, and it's almost in I mean, well, first of all, the very first thing you see is a massive apple eye t- apple dent, <laughs> which is different. The, the, the grandeur it brings. But also, the, one of the first things we see is a date stamp. We see Kilkenny Island 1650. And after both Song of the Sea and Secrets of Kells, where I think in both those discussions we talked about how um, we talked about how you could just watch those films without really knowing when or where they're set. That's um, Song of the Sea is a specific Halloween in 1987 and The Secrets of Kells is specifically Kells and this book is real and all that stuff. With Wolfwalkers, they want to situate you specifically in a time and place and it almost has that historical angle up front and that's very different. It puts you in a different position to the film. Steph, we've we've now said a lot about our sort of familiarities and differences. Uh, what did you make sitting down to watch Wolfwalkers? Was this, like, was this the first cartoon saloon film you'd seen?
2: Yeah, so, yeah, when I saw it um, as part of the Toronto Film Festival, that was the first kind of I'd come into contact with Cartoon Saloon. So So um, watching it again with the kind of the context of the rest of their films was super interesting. And I think, yeah, the, the really clear line is between Secret of Kells and this um, for sure. But definitely in terms, of, I mean, it feels kind of we said about like it taking kind of refining those aspects of Secret of Kells um, in terms of the style but it also feels a lot looser and kind mm-hmm. of freer like even kind of within the town you have these lovely like kind of woodblock style um backgrounds for all the kind of the wooden buildings and stuff Um, and it does feel very rigid but then at the same time the characters kind of spill out of their lines a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like the color isn't completely refined within the line work. And sometimes you have like a sheep in the background. That's literally just a white square with a little sheep outline behind it and stuff (laughs) like that. And um, so you can already feel like a little bit of this. Yeah. Almost like more fluid, like loosening up. And then I think that just completely comes into its own whenever anyone goes into the forest and, Mm. you have so much more kind of watercolor and that lovely line work that maybe you're not supposed to see normally in mm-hmm. um in other animation but they've just kind of left them in of like so
3: the the artifacts of the animation yeah yeah so that's that is a, a big thing
1: isn't it that that they embed those changes in style into like meaningful parts of the film mm. so mm. There's one aspect that I think I only really clocked when I read an interview with Ross Stewart about it. And he said that he wanted Kilkenny, the town, to be this geometric, almost your woodblock kind of world. And then once you go out into the forest and the natural world, that's where these more free-flowing, organic styles of art exist. And then Robin, in the way that she moves between the two as a character, that's what's quite profound is the way that her very design and animation style changes throughout the film. As she, we've said this before, how transformation, but also a contact with the folklore of Ireland or the folklore or the storytelling tradition of the place you're in allows you to transgress or pass through the strictures of the society you live in. And that's exactly Mm. what Robin is doing here she can you know she escapes the town to connect with something deeper
3: and i think the the simplest way of tracking that for robin is through something that we've mentioned before on this podcast which is hair and mm. i don't know if i've any seen anyone use hair in the way that cartoon saloon does like so sort of consistently tying it to story um like so when robin was in the town Uh, her hair is almost rectangular around her head. And you'll see that when she turns into a wolf and goes into the forest, there's bits of frizz and there's curls in there. And there's a great moment after she's been a wolf uh, and is like kind of sitting upright scared at night that she kind of pulls her hair back into shape into that rigid square that the town uh, needs it to be. And this kind of embedding of style and story is so strong in this film. And I think the strongest that they've ever done it throughout their works. Um, And even down to to how they tie their editing into the story and what's happening there. So like something that I really love about it is that, so you've got in the town, you've got this etching style. Etching Mm -hmm. is a style of art where you would be scratching away things from black ink. And so it is the, in the, town the empty parts are filled with black whereas in the forest the empty parts are filled with white Hmm. and in the forest you have these amazing edits where iris is in and out and in those moments the color comes away and you see full white and it's glorious yeah and then you see in the town is where predominantly through the film is where we have our multi-panel edits so you're using the Already geometric shape of the town to then carve up your screen and carve up the kind of monotony and like dirt of industry further into these multi panels and bringing more black into the screen and the black then kind of squeezes Maeve into a box at a later point. So it's bringing together these amazing styles, these frames that we've seen them use before, but tying that all to story as well. It is so impressive it's it's
1: wonderful i love that transition they do where it's like they wipe away the layers of the of the frame cuz you say it fades it is it does have the effect of fading to white but what it does is it wipes away the layer of color then the layer of i'm going to use comics terminology it's probably something different in the way they animate but the way the the inks just to show the pencils and it's like almost like four wipes in quick succession going to white and that effect is almost like some you know we've said with song of the sea and secrets of kells it's almost like a a an old generation inspiring the younger generation to tell stories and those little flourishes in wolf walkers is almost like showing the art behind a film mm-hmm. like wolf walkers and is almost compelling you to go and draw some fan art or try it yourself even yeah. though they're pulling off some incredibly intense experimental hardcore things here um it w- what's there once you peel it all away is just the sketch of a of a wolf girl with a massive mane of orange hair <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I and oh. I just want to say Maeve is like on a level of voice performance, character design, just like the peak for me of mm. what Cartoonsaloon has, has, has done. She, the, the, the 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 sort of vibrancy of that character. I think she was very young when she did the performance. the the girl who does the performance too, but that she's so full of life. I love how she transforms into almost like a quotation mark of hair when she's bouncing around <laughs> and bounding around. I love that the, the joke when um, Robin is brushing her hair and it just pops into various shapes. It's just absolutely a, a really wonderful character in this small tradition now of very great characters that Cartoon Saloon created. I think she is the, the one to beat now for me.
2: Mm. We've seen, like, in every film, I think, just, like, really fantastic um, performances from the children in the movies. Mm -hmm. And it's just, like, really impressive, I think. And, I mean, what you were saying earlier, Michael, about kind of um, them taking inspiration from their children and, like, listening to their kids, it's, like, I guess it's a two-way thing of, like, you can learn from older stories and older people, but you can also, like, learn from, like, children i think that close attention to what they're saying definitely helps in like the film and the dialogue and like how children would like would talk normally and it just it all like always seems so natural and just comes across so well it's really impressive
3: but i think that's an amazing thing that the dialogue between robin and Maeve like feels natural to our modern ears as well like you feel like despite the fact that they're talking about bows and arrows and wolves and monsters and magic and town tasties um, that (laughs) like, this feels like you're just overhearing two girls in the playground, like who are imagining up some story that they're acting out. So even though the, some of the flair in the dialogue feels modern, it doesn't feel anachronistic at all. It still Mm. feels like it totally suits this world that we're in. Uh, And it's like an amazing trick to pull off. But Michael, you mentioned loads of different kind of touch points and things like Indiana Jones and Klaus uh, that are all kind of being brought into the melting pot of this film. Uh, We haven't got into the thing that I think is is different to all the others, which is a big old battle. Um, (laughs) This is is an action film. Um, What do we make of the Cartoon Saloon approach to that? it's epic, isn't it?
2: I love in the credits, they credit like wolf consultants. And then what I'm assuming is just the name of a bunch of wolves that they've gone <laughs> out and watched run around and do wolf things. Um, just because I think the it's quite kind of intense and scary and realistic in in a way that kind of those characters move. And like, yeah, God, that final kind of third act like big kind of fire ending is really not like anything we've seen before I mean in Secret of Kells you have these kind of shadowy figures attacking the town um they're not really they don't really have like faces or much too much detail but they are kind of ominous and scary and then in this you have just like so much detail in what you're seeing um I know we had said about it being quite similar to princess Mononoke in that sense of, of the kind of big action, action mm. vibes.
1: I suppose it follows through on what we said on the breadwinner, where it feels that the threat becomes more real. Mm. Um, mm. There, there, there is more peril and threat here. And I mean, both their parents get, you know, injured, you know, Shot by an arrow and all sorts. There's a proper jump scare, isn't there? At mm. the one point mm. where they think they're safe, and then an arrow shoots from off frame. Cool. So it really is um, them flexing. If if you thought that Song of the Sea maybe was a little twee, I mean we didn't, but you know I, I could I could see some um, some reviews saying that this this film is much more dark and challenging, maybe for the very young. Uh, viewers i tried to watch this with ivo the, my two and a half year old son and um he was scared immediately because <laughs> <the, the, laughs> you go straight into a wolf uh, kind of skirmish with the sheep farmers at the beginning
3: uh so he immediately told us to turn it off <laughs> but he is two and a half probably a little young <laughs> just throw on princess Mononoke; he'll be fine um but the um just thinking of what you said about indiana jones michael j- i can just imagine like those close-ups of just indy under the brim of his hat and his eyes kind of glaring like these you had these close-ups for the battles in here where like the frame almost gets divided up like it's the opening of a mortal combat battle where you pop into oh, the yeah. face and the background <laughs> is just these vibrant colors uh that they spent all that time doing um and you there is this propulsion this energy to that final act that we haven't seen before mm-hmm. and you're like getting into uh kind of your, your helms deep moments of like arrows mm-hmm. flying in different directions and uh people tumbling uh, it's uh very very good stuff
1: i feel like i should i like that you say mortal kombat I think they're probably more likely referencing like samurai movies and the way that you'd have like the standoffs where it's the extremes of a wide wide shot frame. <laughs> we should say, say that the clearly then, to say? The, the beat-em-ups like Mortal Kombat Street Fighter then took that off as the entire genre, the, <laughs> the entire visual aesthetic of the genre. But um, yeah, and what I find quite a thing they managed to pull off is the way that they change the wolves throughout the film from being this sort of monstrous threat to them being cuddly for a while, to then at the end being able to be part of this big epic Helm's Deep fight. And they also, I love the scenes when they're they're at their cuddliest and they're running through the forest with Maeve and and Robin, and they are just like an extension of her hair flowing behind Mm. them. I wonder whether that's a good route into talking about the wolf vision sequence, but also the the sort of musical sequence with the running with the wolves song, which are two right, real standout moments.
3: Yeah. I mean, the, the Wolf Vision is great to hear like how it was made because it now kind of clicks totally into place of how I was thinking about it, was that watching the Wolf Vision sequences is the closest that you'd come to watching a 3D film without watching a 3D film. Mm. Like the way that you just get propelled through it and then combining that with that amazing chalk that looks like uh, when the Enterprise flies off at warp speed and leaves that trail behind—it's uh, <laughs> it's beautiful, beautiful stuff.
2: Yeah, this—I think that is like the big scene, right? Like the big music scene. You have all the running that um, wolfish and stuff. Kind of reminded me of like old Disney, like pastel colors mm. a little bit. Um. yeah god just amazing like it's a yeah a proper kind of sequence where they just get to flex for like two minutes and you just get to see all of this stuff that they're doing like come into play and I think that um kind of leaving in the artifacts and and yeah like just knowing as well how much time it took to make just makes it so much more impressive like um, you always like I always like to look at like behind the scenes stuff for how films are made anyway but I think with animation it's just something where yeah you look at something like that and it's just like oh okay yeah this one shot took three years to make (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) just so like the fact that it is just so kind of handmade and yeah you've just got like 300 people working on that for that long just it just adds to it so much like even once you know that
3: that reminds me of the uh, the thrill of watching a Leica film at the cinema. It was almost like waiting to get to the end credits so you could see them just building yeah. <laughs> all of the scenes.
1: Yeah, there's something, isn't there, about these animation studios like Leica and Cartoon Saloon where there's such a joy in the creativity of the behind the project. And the wolf vision mm-hmm. sequence is like, for a little chunk in the middle of the film, it's an experimental short. Um, they're really trying things out these little fireworks and explosions of colour but also I think it speaks to a purity at the heart of the Cartoon Saloon thing that we talk about that they make a film like this and something that is really important for them is wouldn't it be cool if you could turn into a wolf and your sense of smell was as strong as as we rely on our sense of sight and how would that work what's the synesthesia of that that's so. If if Hayao Miyazaki is like, how would a moving castle move? Yeah, you know, wh- what is a flush rivet? You no, know, like he, he's much more interested in mechanical questions in the designs. It feels that cartoons are much more organic and about nature, and that is almost the perfect example of that. And it also runs right through into the *Running with the Wolves* sequence, which is one of the most purely joyous scenes in animation that I've particularly in the last few years, particularly in all the films we've watched, you know, um, studio Ghibli films, like when Marnie was there, there's always this sort of tinge of melancholy. There's nothing there. It's really just wonderful because they've met each other and they have this connection. And, uh, Robin finds sort of, you know, untold freedom in the forest with Maeve that she could never have in Ireland or England beforehand.
3: Mm-hmm. But that is not to say this is a total romp all the way through, Michael. There is... <laughs> um, we there have is still some of that <laughs> melancholy that we're used to, um, pa- like particularly in the in the shape of what we've, we we have dubbed the the cartoon saloon sad unit of a dad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah,
3: and um, I said before that like if
1: I could have an Irish dad, it would be Brendan Gleeson, and I think if I could have a dad from Yorkshire, it would
3: be Sean Bean. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And that's, Sean Bean, and, who no, makes
3: it out alive as well,
1: yes. he does. It's amazing. What? This came out at the same. It was, this was part of the same festival season as Possessor. So you had Sean Bean being in this kid, this action-packed kids movie and this incredibly intense, gory Brandon Cronenberg film. <laughs> a
3: good year for Sean
1: Bean fans. <laughs>
3: but he, he's a good dad, uh, and I like the journey he he goes on, um, and I, I like that it's not maybe a, a typical kids adventure parent who is just like needlessly blocks everything that they do or has no interest in it or doesn't really care um uh, he is protective and is trying to think about her like safety as well as kind of treating her as a person as well yeah it's, it's a development on from um the uncle in
1: cal's like there is a sense that we did we did in that film get this sense that he was forced into being so stubborn and mm. closing his eyes to the wisdom that his nephew is telling him. And Song of the Sea is similar, but that's because the dad is experiencing grief. And in this one, the good fellow, the hunter, is being forced into the position he's be, he's in by the lord protector and that he's just as much in a way a victim of the 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 social structure around them as, as anyone else mm-hmm. so that it is a quite complex thing they're pulling off here and it's sort of leading us into what i'm so intrigued by about this film I've, we've had this thread running through song of the sea and secret calls looking at these films as being a product of an almost post-colonial nation, island, looking back on traditions um, and a sort of national identity and history that was maybe blighted out by the colonial rule of Britain. And this one has such a specificity to it. They say that it's not Cromwell, but it is. It's a guy called the Lord Prote- Protector. who has a massive mole on his nose. <laughs> it's him. <laughs> And so, because they're talking with that historical specificity, and have the um, the the, uh, the routing of the wolves as a particular metaphor for you know the devastation that Cromwell brought, but also a national spirit that was that was quelled by the colonial rule of Britain and hundreds of years of that. It's really fascinating then that they use the almost audience surrogate roots into that as to, as an as an English girl. Mm. we've talked all the way through as it being you know like a an irish kid discovering something about their past here we have almost an avatar fern gully pocahontas type story which is something i only really realized on maybe a second or third pass of this film because it gets away with it so much better than those films which are often told by the from a the colonial point of view like it's uh, uh, the predominantly white american disney retelling pocahontas without necessarily coming from a Native American point of view, whereas we have this from an Irish point of view, reckoning with this influx of of, uh, of British imperial rule, using Northern English voices, Northern English characters as as a route in and then discovering the wildness within and the wildness as represented by Maeve and the wolf walkers in the forest as something that is in within all of us. And it's a really fascinating thing to pull off because you have in this the townies, Within Kilkenny, who are probably the more caricatured and antagonistic characters of the film, the ones who want to lock up Robin and Maeve, and you know they're they're just like uncouth rabble rousers. You do have the sort of um, jokey Tommy tin and voiced farmer who's in the stocks, who's sort of like a comic chorus coming back throughout the film. Our hearts lie with the core cast of the Goodfellows and the Wolfwalkers. And it's this marriage that they have at the end because, I mean, it's always a marriage of convenience because they go off in a nice cart together <laughs> uh, with this, this family that's been created. But it's a marriage of like Northern English and uh, Irish roots. And I, I really want to know what they mean by that because we've been taught throughout these three films we've done so far that stories are important and stories can inform our present and our future. And I'm so fascinated. There is no story within a story here. We don't have the storyteller distancing us or sort of giving us that context. So we are interrogating this, scrutinizing this. I know I am scrutinizing this maybe more than is intended, but it's so fascinating for me. And I wonder, is any of this resonating for you, Jake and Steph, or am I just so far off on a branch here on my own?
3: <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, and you've said that like the team behind... Well, they were thinking of this film very much as a fantasy. Like mm. Cromwell was already dead at this point. Like, so it it's it is him, but it's not him. Like mm. this is a Kilkenny and an island that does not exist. Um, it is a fantasy. And yeah, I I was kind of thinking, what is the if we're revisiting this theme of storytelling throughout, what is the story within the story here? Is that a thing that they're coming back to? And it's more like wolf walkers is the story that would exist within one of the other stories this is the tale that would get told down the line and we could almost imagine a cartoon saloon film in a hundred years that kind of talks about the wolf walkers within it and it's actually just like an urban story of modern kids Mm -hmm. that are learning about it and that's aspect
1: maybe means yes as you say, it's this fantasy retelling of history where you can have this symbolic almost reichenbach falls sherlock holmes style death for the lord protector mm-hmm. falling into this waterfall is he dead is he not and in interviews tom moore and rusty have said that they've been sort of take you know like they did think a lot about this when they were writing the story with with, with will collins like are they doing inglorious bastards Are they, you know, the way that Quentin Tarantino said, I'm making a movie, I can rewrite history if I want, I can have the Allies, you know, mowing down Nazis with machine guns. Or are they doing an an Indiana Jones type thing, which is, this is not history, this is fantasy, this is a, you know, an epic adventure story, where we can have Nazis being wiped out by this natural force, the Ark of the Covenant at the end. And they're landing somewhere in between, but with this profound sort of message as part of it about finding the wolf within you, (laughs) the wildness. Don't get tied down by the the social structures. Go
3: and, you know, walk around the forest a bit. Yeah. We should quickly take this back to what our original podcast was all about, Michael, which is Studio Ghibli. Um, What Ghibli are we seeing within this? We've mentioned Princess Mononoke already. Is there anything else going on? I think we mentioned this on the interview
1: with Tom and Ross, didn't we? Like The amazing thing about this is that, yes, you you immediately think of Princess Mononoke and they said in that interview that they had animators at the studio like doing frame-by-frame analysis of Princess Mononoke. But it's Princess Mononoke with the experimentation of an Issa Takahata film, the way that they're so willing to bend and flex the style of the film as you go, to follow the emotion or the intentionality of the line of the animator's hand so it's like Princess Kaguya, mince. it's, it's a, the ultimate princess movie, right? It's Princess Monoki <laughs> meets Princess Kaguya.
2: <laughs> We've mentioned some pretty top tier ghiblies, top tier princesses. It sounds like uh, Robin and Maeve, Princesses of Wolfhawkers, are kind of up there with the rest of those.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. There, I think we can all agree that this is a good film. <laughs> <laughs> So this is normally the point where we would put our rankings together, um, but we haven't actually come up with a good name for our equivalent leaderboard for this series. But also we've all decided that we kind of want another week to ruminate on this because we we need to do our homework and uh, kind of figure out what we really think. Because this is, this is a real challenge. This is more of a challenge than Ghibli or Satoshi Kon before it because these ones are all so close, aren't they?
1: Absolutely. Gives us another week to think about it, (laughs) to pick our Um, favorites among our favorite children. Yeah.
3: And if you would like any more Wolf Walkers context than we've already given you, I'd recommend everyone go and listen to the Script Apart podcast and the episode with Will Collins about Wolf Walkers, which gets into the first draft of that script. And there are a lot of differences to the one that we ended up getting. But uh, let's know let's know your favourite, uh, because we'll be doing a mailbag episode at the end of this series, uh, where we'll be covering some of the shorts from Cartoon Saloon, um, talking about their TV series, Puffin Rock, but also hearing from you. Um, how would you rank them? Let us know uh, at ghibli at little.studios.com. Or let us know on Twitter, just any uh, Cartoon Saloon lovely thoughts or memories you might have. We're over there at ghibliotech. Uh, Michael's there as well at Michael J Leader and Steph's on Twitter at underscore Steph Watts
2: and Jake is there at Jake H Cunningham Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production our music is made by Anthony Ng our artwork is by Sophie Mo and the show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham Harold McShill and Steph Watts that's me, I'm the editor as well
3: Hello, listeners. Thanks for sticking with us through the credits. Uh, Jake here with your nugget of the week. Uh, this is a blink-and-you-miss-it cameo from a key item from one of Cartoon Saloon's films. So when Maeve is rummaging through Robin's belongings, she grabs the column Chile a.k.a. the god's eye, that kind of diamond kaleidoscopic thing that we saw in The Secret of Kells, and throws it away. Um, No respect at all.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.